Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Harry Tuft. Denver's reputation in folk music circles is due to this gentleman. It has been said that every acoustic musician worth their salt has made the pilgrimage to Harry's Denver Folklore Center to buy a guitar or just soak up knowledge. He is the dean of the Rocky Mountain region's folk scene. Welcome, sir. Thank you, G. I'm delighted to be here. You were seduced by music, but you managed to get two years of graduate school studying architecture. Yep. What took you off that path to get you out to Colorado? When I got back from college, there was already a good folk music scene starting in Philadelphia. There was a place called the Gilded Cage. The Cage was just a great place to be. And Sundays, they would have what they called a hootenanny, which was basically a round robin around a round table. And people would come down. It's where I first met Dick Weissman, who, while he was originally from Philadelphia, was living in New York. But he would come in on the weekends, teach some lessons, and see his family. He'd had parties on weekends. People like Brownie McGee would come and John Lee Hooker. And a woman named Karen Dalton had come from Denver with Dick. Karen was living with Dick, and the significance of that was that I'd been talking about skiing and singing, and they said, well, why don't you go out to Colorado and see if you can get work? I ended up finding a drive away, and Weissman was headed out to the West Coast, so he and I drove to Denver. I drove right up into the mountains to the Holy Cat and walked in and said I was looking for a job. He said, come back Monday. The upshot of being in the community was that you met the owner of the Exodus, the premier folk club in Denver. That's right. Getting to know what was going on in Denver, the Exodus was not only the premier club in Denver, but really well known in a circuit throughout Midwest into the Rockies. Hal Newstetter was very prominent in that. And so I went down and auditioned. And the story was that if he liked you and was going to hire you, he would criticize you. And if he didn't, he would be nice to you. Well, he was nice to me, so I knew I was not getting the job there. But it happened that he was on his way out to Aspen to see a, a duo, and the pass was closed. And he knew I was at the Holy Cat, so he came in and we visited. He thought that somebody could have a good part-time living with opening a folklore center. He said, well, there are a couple of places near the Exodus that I think would be good to rent. I went and looked at the places that he had recommended, and then there was a place next to this Greenwich Village wannabe coffee house called the Green Spider, and there was a place available right next door to it. Cheaper than the ones on the other side, it was $57 a month. (laughs) (laughs) It had a north-facing window so I could put instruments in the window and not worry about the sun. So I rented that space. By March of 62, I was ready for what we called a grand opening. And it should be noted, this was described as a small instrument and music book store. But music stores at the time usually meant selling band instruments or pianos. That's right. Anyone who was selling guitars or stringed instruments, the salesman on commission couldn't be bothered. That was ancillary stuff. And your place wasn't typical at all. The Folklore Center was a mecca, as it turned out, for Denver's acoustic. Musicians. When I said I was going to open a store and people said, well, what kind of store? I said, well, what are you going to sell? I said, well, I'll sell guitars. They said, guitars? You can't make a living selling guitars. And of course, they were kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> it had books and recordings 
and instruments and accessories all around folk music. So that's what I had. As your reputation in the community grew, you expanded and eventually took over that whole block. From Pearl to the alley, with the exception of the upholstery store, Harry Height had been in there for all the time that I knew him. The Green Spider, here's a story that doesn't get much play. When Barry Fay wanted to bring the family dog to Denver, he brought Bob Cohen into the store. They went next door to the Green Spider. Don Lane, L-E-H-N, Don Lane was the owner, and he had made up this thing. He had two large discs on which he put lucite rocks of different colors, and he had a light underneath. So projecting it. Yes, it was a projector, and you could sit there watching these two discs going around, and basically it was the first light show. Those consecutive storefronts on 17th, there was the concert hall, there was the instrument repair shop, and the music store, you had two spaces for that, right? That's right, yeah. With all the instruments, and then the bead shop for everyone's beading needs. Exactly right. (laughs) Then the record shop that had all of the titles that you couldn't get at the chains, Mm -hmm. and then finally the music school. Probably a staff of about 10 or 12 all together doing different things. David Ferretta, who came to work for me because he was a conscientious objector in the war, and he would come in and he said, when I get out, I have this plan. I want to work for you for three years, and then I want to open my own store. David was a major factor in bringing the Colorado Bluegrass Festival to Denver because Bill Monroe got in touch with David and wanted to do a festival. They worked it out. And the first festivals were at the Adams County Fairgrounds. So with the help of these wonderful people, you built a wonderful business, but you also built a wonderful community. This calm, comfortable place where customers came in to talk as much as they did to buy something. Camaraderie was more important than commerce. I never heard anyone say that you sold them an instrument based on reducing inventory. or any, uh, <laughs> Everyone felt special something was going on that maybe the establishment or the man didn't know about. I didn't know very much about business, but apparently I knew something about people. In the early 60s was a time when retail was good enough that a lot of retailers didn't have to really care about customer service. Sometimes those experiences were not very valuable. So people would come in and they would talk about wanting to buy something, but I would often get the feeling that what they were really after was just some one-to-one contact, some direct contact with someone. And I always built my business on a very basic idea, and that is treat the people who come in the same way you want to be treated if you were on the other side of the counter. And it always worked. And the other thing was that I was never so worried about competition that I couldn't refer people to other stores if I didn't have something. Basically, we tried to help people. But the things that were out of your control, this was a time of turmoil. You're the headquarters for every free-thinking kid in Denver hanging out at the store at the hippie hangout. Did you ever get pushback from parents who were wondering why their offspring were... I never got pushback from parents, but I got pushback from the police. Well, that's even better. (laughs) I was going with a woman with whom I eventually became engaged, and she, through an unfortunate circumstance, had gotten to know an assistant DA in the Denver office who called me and said, you did not hear this from me, but the manager of safety and the police 
are concerned about drugs, the marijuana that's going on, and they want to make an example of you. So if you're doing any drugs of any kind, just be very careful. So I thanked him, and sure enough, these two cops, Lorita and Gray, sometimes they'd come in and they would hassle the customers. Pat Hanna, who was an entertainment reporter for the Rocky Mountain News, had done this story on the Green Spider and the Folklore Center, and then had us pose in a picture, headline, Hippie Leaders of Denver. That sealed my fate. That's exactly when this shit started. On the more positive side, the things you could control, (laughs) to publicize the Folklore Center, you came up with what might have been the first folk source catalog, uh, this comprehensive publication, the Denver Folklore Center catalog, an almanac of folk music. It was supposed to be a mail-order catalog with a lot of information as well. information, listings of stores and manufacturers. And I always admired the distribution technique. You went out to the Newport (laughs) Folk Fest in 65, and that gave the Folklore Center something of a national reputation just because everyone loved it. That's true. Denver was a convenient location on the way to or from the West Coast, and you started to promote shows. Well, I had a call from Manny Greenhill. I subscribed and advertised in Sing Out magazine, which was the rolling stone of its day, so to speak. He said, well, I want to bring Joan Baez to Denver. Have you ever thought about promoting a concert? I said, well... I've never done one, and I don't have any money. And he said, well, don't worry about that. I'll put up all the money that's needed. I'll walk you through how to promote it, and I'll give you 10% of the gross, which was pretty generous by today's standards. Mm -hmm. Baez was really hot at that time. So I rented the Auditorium Theater in downtown Denver, which is now the Ellie Calkins, brought her to Denver, and we sold it out. Then we took Baez out to Red Rocks because he wanted to talk her into playing there. She and I went down to the stage, and we did a little uh, play acting. She was very easy to meet. She came into Denver on the train all by herself, no entourage. Later on, it turns out that she wanted to meet the Beatles. So Manny called again, and he wanted me to schedule a Red Rocks concert after the Beatles because she wanted to come out and meet the Beatles and then do a concert. Their concert was on a Wednesday in August, and I set ours up at Friday. And it was just the two of us between Tuesday and Friday. It was once-in-a-lifetime experience. She was the queen of folk music at the time. Yeah. Wednesday, through Barry Morrison, who was the entertainment editor, He got her up to Red Rocks into backstage. I came up separately, and by the time I got there, she was already had met the Beatles. They were in a press conference. So I just went into the dressing room and just kind of stood in the back, and they came in, and there was this really wonderful scene of the five of them wanting to get to know each other but kind of hesitant. At the time, she was in love with Dylan. All she could talk about, really, was Dylan. What she wanted to do was to get them to meet Dylan when they were at Forest Hills that following Friday and Saturday, which actually did turn out. But it was just great to watch the interaction. When they went out on stage, we walked out, basically standing right in front of the stage. And I often looked to see if I could find any kind of a photograph that would show us standing there. And the speakers went above us, and yet we couldn't hear anything because the sound of the kids 
It was like needles coming into your body. It was incredible. She says that she taught Paul McCartney how to finger pick that night. He had never done that. The Mamas and Papas made a stop in Denver during their first American tour in 66. You needed $5,000 to secure the concert? I did. I previously had made the acquaintance of Dick Lamb in 66 because I'd known John from The Journeyman. I had a chance that I could bring the Mamas and Papas, but of course I, I needed that guarantee. So I went to Dick and I said, you know, there's this group called the Mamas and Papas. I think I can sell out 6,700 seats but I need this guarantee. And he said, okay. And I said, if you put that up, we'll just split whatever we make out of it. It was quite a while later that he confessed that he had absolutely no idea who the moms and papas were. One week before the concert, they were on the cover of Time magazine, and he immediately relaxed. We sold it out. I sent them to the night deposit at the Denver U.S. National Bank with two bags full of $17,000, which today would be about $170,000. And we split a profit of maybe $5,000 each or something like that. And he took his half and started his campaign for the State House of Representatives. And Dick, of course, <laughs> went on to become governor of yes, Colorado. Yes, he sure did. You did several big-name acts at Red Rocks. I remember that first pairing of Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie. Yes. I got a call from Harold Leventhal, who was a manager of both of them and Judy Collins, with whom I already had a relationship. And he said, well, I'd like to bring Pete out to Red Rocks. How do you think he'll do? I said, well, he'll do okay, but he won't sell out. And he said, well, what about Arlo? I said, the same. He'd do okay, but he wouldn't sell out. This was before Alice's Restaurant. He said, well, what about the two of them? I said, well, that's a slam dunk. That would work. He said, well, we'd been talking about it, and they thought maybe they would. So he talked to the two of them, and that's when they did the first of their concerts together. It was wonderful to watch them because they were so deferential to each other. Pete acknowledging Arlo's popularity and youth, and Arlo regarding Pete as a kind of a second father. It was so sweet to see them. You ought to have done a little more yodeling. That was nice. We can do that yodeling thing later. All right. You know, yodeling is something that's very hard to do when there's a, there's a crowded population because you have to wake people up. The only time you re I really feel like yodeling is either very late at night or very early in the morning. You did many shows that kind of stemmed from the Denver Folklore Center. If an artist would stop by the store, you'd ask him to do a workshop, and then things kind of grew out of that, and you promoted more modest shows with Ramblin' Jack Elliott, right. Doc Watson, the flat-picking guitar greats. Mike so Seeger. Those were all part of the ferment there. In the beginning, I rented from Don Lane the space to do concerts, and then when Don closed Green Spider... A woman named Joyce Coffey had a theater in there for a little while, and that closed. Those two spaces became available. I rented those as a concert hall. Lots of people would come in there. We had Doc Watson a number of times, Reverend Gary Davis, Michael Cooney, Trickett, Rosalie Sorrells, Utah Phillips. And then I rented the place on the corner, and that allowed me more room, twice the size. We also made an arrangement with Chuck Morris and KFML to do live casts. They set up a box in the basement, a telephone line. Chuck would bring acts over in the afternoon 
to promote the shows at night. Ry Cooter came, did a show, Bonnie Raitt. The Doobie Brothers came and put so much equipment into the room that there wasn't any room for people. (laughs) (laughs) And you allude to KFML, which was the underground free form station, if you will, here in Denver. And you were one of the founding fathers. That was an amazing era for broadcasting. It's kind of hard to encapsulate. It was the golden age of free form radio. And they were, I believe, one of the top 10 stations in the country. I was privileged, honored to be a a part of that. This is when each announcer could play what they felt, for the most part, weaving stories and themes into your sets. And you could do blocks. You could do segues, because unlike uh, commercial radio as such, where every song ended with a comeback and perhaps a commercial or some sort of a break, in case of KFML, you could do 20 minutes. Tom Trinnell was the music director, and the only criterion was it had to work. And what that meant is that if Tom understood why you played Andre Castellanitz, then it was okay. (laughs) (laughs) The KFML library was incredible. Thousands of records, all the way from Andre Castellanitz to field recording blues and all the rock and roll and a bunches of folk music and classical music. It was an incredible library. And so you'd start out, I would anyway, no agenda really, put a record on and whatever it was in that selection that led me to the next one, I'd jump up and run to the library and grab it. And I had a wonderful time. I'd been on the radio at Dartmouth, so I already was a radio junkie. And then Walt Conley, who was really the biggest name in folk music in Denver at the time, had a radio show on KFML, which was a classical station from 2 to 3. And he would go out of town from time to time, so he asked me, would I sit in for him? And so I agreed and started to do that. And one anecdote, I was about to leave for the show. A couple of fellows come in the store with guitars. They say they're folk singers from Boston. And this is 1963, and I knew the scene in Boston was pretty good. Uh, Their names were Jeff Muldor and Robert L. Jones, and I didn't know those names at all at that time. But I said, okay, come on. And so they came out, and Jones opens up his guitar, and he's got a very fancy 0045 Martin guitar. And I knew without even playing, they were going to be all right. And for an hour, they made wonderful music. Later on, I took over the show, and even after that... KFML let me do a Saturday night show. I stole the name from Chicago called the Midnight Special because in those days there was no internet, so they wouldn't catch me. And for two hours from 10 to midnight, some years later, in 1971, Jerry Mills was on the radio, and he was on KFML. I had a license, and they were looking for a part-timer. In those days, you needed a license. And he asked me if I wanted to do some part-time weekend stuff. I was excited elated, delighted. So I did the weekend stuff. Sunday morning, I would do a gospel show. I would play mostly black gospel. And on Easter, I would also play the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, just (laughs) to give a little bit of the other side. And then go out for Chinese food, right? (laughs) (laughs) Those days at KFML were just absolutely wonderful. Switching back to the concert promotion business, Harry, it changed dramatically by the mid-70s. It became run like a cartel, basically, with the major promoters in each market. I'll tell you when it stopped for me. Two things happened. One, Barry 
and Chuck had opened the Rainbow Music Hall. They contracted with Pete Seeger. I realized that if I wanted to continue, I was going to have to go up against them because by that time, my area of acoustic music was commercially viable to them as well. That was one thing. The other is that the writers were getting so long and complicated that you not only had the contract, you had all this stuff that came with it. And it just seemed like more of a hassle than, than it was worth that was the ferment that brought about the idea of another option, providing the same store and performance and school synergy. I'm talking about Swallow Hill. I'd moved the concert hall to the corner, and we just had a wonderful series. A woman named Bev Schwer made these incredible calendars. We had events all during the week, great people who worked there. It was a great venue, but it lost about $15,000 a year. And that was a lot of money in those days. And I realized, even though it provided me with visibility and stuff like that, that it was not something I could sustain. But I thought, well, if we could make it nonprofit, we could get memberships, grants, contributions, things like that, and maybe it would be able to go on by itself. So at that time, I asked people who were part of the community around the Folklore Center, and some of whom had grown out of an earlier organization called the Denver Friends of Folk Music. We got together, and I proposed this idea that we make a nonprofit. Well, one of the folks, Sharon Polhamus, was able to find the documents and get started on that. And in the process, found out that for a 501c3, there needed to be an educational component. And so I said, okay, well, I've got a school, so we'll put the school and the concert hall together. At the time, there'd been an article in the paper about historic district that had been around, that had not lasted as a name like Bonnie Bray does today, but had originally been a development area called Swallow Hill from 12th to 20th and Grant to Downing basically. And so I said, well, let's call it Swallow Hill. That was in 79, and it was run for that year in the store. And then in 80, I decided that it was time for me to close. My string had run out, and the store was really not doing well. At that time, a couple of things happened. As far as Swallow Hill, Julie Davis and Eileen Niehaus took the name and the idea and moved it to South Broadway, where Rick Kirby, who had been my repair shop manager, took the name of the Folklore Center and inventory from the Folklore Center and restarted the business at 440 South Broadway. And upstairs, Eileen and Julie did lessons and then had shows at different venues in the area. Rich Harris came on after that as executive director, and those folks get the credit for keeping Swallow Hill going. And so the rest is history. As it is. Say. Still an amazing success to this day with thousands of people volunteering their time and energy. Just to see the activity and how vibrant it is. It's just really gratifying. You did get the Folklore Center moved to a location on South Pearl Street. That was 25 years ago. I took a hiatus for 10 years. Uh -huh. I did a variety of things, and none of which really satisfied me. So in 1993, I went to my wife at the time and said, uh, Martha, I think I'm going to open up the Folklore Center. And she said, why? You didn't make any money last time. <laughs> <laughs> I had some money from my dad's estate. So I did have some money to be able to get started. 
and I wanted to locate near that current iteration of the Swallow Hill on Pearl and Jewel. So there was a place for rent, so I started up again. And had a nice little run. In January of 2015, I said to Saul Rosenthal, who was head of the board at Swallow Hill, and we had lunch, where I said, you know, Saul, I'm going to either sell the store or liquidate it, give myself a year. And he said, well, you can't liquidate it. Let's see what we can do to salvage it. Well, the original idea was to re-blend it into the Swallow Hill, because Swallow Hill was thinking of another location at that time. But that was just not working. And long story short, Saul and a friend of his, Claude Brockfeld, decided just to buy it outright, which they did. And it's a good, thriving, going business to this day. It's in good hands, which has got to be very gratifying. Absolutely. And so, over 50 years after you moved out here, you're doing what you moved out here to do, which was play music full-time. And that's been really joyous to see and hear. Let's go over that arc. You formed Grubstake with Steve Abbott and Jack Stanesco. 1971, there was a coffee house that had been set up in the Catholic school up the street at 18th and Logan. And a friend of mine was running it, and he said, you know, we could use some entertainment. Why don't you come? And... I had not been performing, but I'd been making music, hanging out with Steve Abbott and Jack Stanesco. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And I asked them if they would come and join me. And that was, in fact, our first get-together. And we decided we liked that. It worked out okay. We named our band, This Band is Starving. (laughs) (laughs) And if you see us today, you will know that that's no longer the case. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, we had to get another kind of a name, so we chose Grubstake. You also recorded as a solo artist, Folk Legacy Records, yes. across the yeah. Blue Mountains, stood out. I cruised out on a fine summer's eve All out of sight of the land And now, without the weight of running a store or a union or concert promotion, you're getting to do OPSs. OPSs, other people's songs. You and Dick Weissman, the inveterate folkies, still care about social activism. Yeah, we sure do. You two have a new initiative. It came out of a few years back when this disparity in society, both economically and socially, between the haves and have-nots, the 99%, the 1%. It occurred to me that there ought to be a way to do something to highlight the problem, to somehow energize folks to work in some way against it in an incremental way. No huge deals, but just to maybe make some statements and hopefully to excite people to do something. There is a, a song that I've known for a long time by a fellow named Len Chandler, a black singer-songwriter, was in the village in the early days. Judy Collins did one of his songs, did a couple of albums for Columbia. The song that I've always enjoyed depicts a conversation, really, between a white man and a black man, and the white man leads off one who holds the cards. But the third verse has in it the line, bottom rung, referring to the ladder that's available to be climbed. And the white man says, I can climb to the top. You can climb one rung and you have to stop. But the black man says, with bottom rung, I'm not satisfied. With this bottom rung, I'm not satisfied. Well, I'll climb a 
So I thought bottom rung was a good phrase or a good start. So that's the organization. We've gotten a small grant to do some things, and we're sort of re-energized to see what we can do to do something about it. Enough is a word that you find compelling. Somewhere along the way, I realized that enough has two meanings. First thought of it is thinking about people who have a lot of money and a lot of, you know, when is enough enough? And then almost at the same time, I realized that folks on the other end, they don't have enough. What do they need just to have enough? So that double meaning of that one word really resonates with me. Just like an interview like this, when is enough enough? I'd say right now, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) We always leave them laughing. Harry, what's your favorite musician's joke? How many banjo players does it take to eat a possum? Gee, Harry, I don't know. Well, it takes two. One to eat the possum and one to watch for cars. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, my friend. Oh, gee, it's a pleasure, privilege, and honor. Thank you so much. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.